0: and uh, thank you for joining us on this webinar on IR35. As I'm sure most people are aware, the IR35 legislation was introduced in 2000 to combat what the revenue perceived as anti-avoidance of tax and national insurance obligations by contractors working through personal service companies. It's smoothed on a bit since then, and hopefully this webinar will help provide you with a useful update as to its operation and your obligations under The format of today's webinar is that Sarah will take us through the background to IR35 and what employers need to consider in terms of calculating employment status. Then Tim will talk us through the relatively recent changes to IR35 introduced in 2017, whereby public sector organisations became responsible for determining employment status and also what's coming up in 2021 as the burden for determining employment status is extended to the private sector. A couple of housekeeping points. While Sarah and Tim are speaking, um, everyone's going to be on mute. So please feel free to type in your questions in the chat function. If you'd like to keep your question private, then please just select my name in the drop-down box within the chat function, um, and then send your question. Time permitting, we'll pick all of them up and try and answer as many as we can after the presentations. Um, The webinar is being recorded and will be available to you all after. If there are any questions that remain unanswered, Um, or we come to the end of our allocated time, Sarah and Tim's contact details are available on the slides, and we will be putting up uh, FAQs after this. Also, if you want copies of the slides, then please please feel free to contact us. Um, Without further ado, I'd like to invite Sarah to start us off.
1: Thank you, B. Good afternoon, everybody. As Bee explained, my name is Sarah Schofield. I'm an Employment Associate at Glazier Solicitors. We're part of the ETL UK network alongside Wilder Co (coughs) Ltd. This morning, I'm going to kick us off. I'm going to start with an introduction to IR35 and an explanation as to how it currently operates in the private sector, and then we will move on to Tim Cook from Wilder Co, who's going to talk you through the planned changes to the IR35 regime in the private sector, and also um, some tips for preparing for the changes. So, Before we look in any detail at the IR35 regime, I just wanted to spend a little bit of time thinking about employment status um, and how the tax tribunal and the employment tribunals categorize individual workers. And you'll see from my first slide that from an employment law perspective, there are three potential categories into which an individual worker may fall. So at one end of the scale, we have employees, At the other end of the scale we have self-employed individuals or independent contractors and then somewhere not necessarily in the middle i'd say nearer towards the employee end of the scale we have workers and you can see from my diagram that in terms of the tax regime they only have two categories into which an individual will fall and in that case you're either an employee or you're self-employed So we need to think about why it's important to be able to correctly identify an individual worker or contractor status. From an employment law perspective, as you will have seen from my previous slide, we've got the three different statuses to think about. So an employee is somebody who has entered into or works under a contract of employment, which on the face of it is pretty straightforward and obvious. And a contract of employment includes a contract of service and a contract of apprenticeship. And employees benefit from the whole um, remit or gambit of employment law rights that exist. So the right not to be unfairly dismissed, the right to a statutory redundancy payment, the whole um, plethora of family-friendly rights, discrimination protection, etc, etc. At the other end of that scale, we have self-employed individuals who, as you will see from the slide, um, gain none of those employment law rights or protections because they're genuinely independent contractors. And then we have this third category of um, a worker, which is somewhat um, put the cat amongst the pigeons, shall we say, when it comes to um, employment status um, considerations from an employment law perspective. And a worker, um, the statutory de- definition of a worker, is somebody who works under or enters into a contract of employment, which would obviously include employees. And then we have this second limb of the worker test, which is generally where we've had the most um, confusion and litigation that's a reason. Um, and the second limb defines a worker as somebody who enters into a contract to personally perform work or services to the other contracting party And the other contracting party is not a client or customer of that individual's business or undertaking. And you may have heard those referred to as Limby workers. And that just means it's the second element of the definition of of worker. And it's a bit of a hybrid status. And it's designed really to protect those individuals who are not full blown employees, but equally well it wouldn't be right to regard them as entirely independent contractors um, they're a bit of a hybrid between the two um, and that's sort of um, borne out really by the employment law protections workers workers have insofar as they have some limited basic rights such as the right not to be discriminated against, the right to paid statutory annual leave, the right to the national minimum wage for example If we have a look now briefly at the tax regime when it comes to status again you'll see from the slide that there are the two statuses that are applicable so if you're an employee from a tax perspective then the consequences of that are that the relevant employer in that arrangement has to pay national insurance and income tax If you're self-employed from a tax perspective, then you've got greater freedom to structure your income in the most tax efficient way, which would commonly be by way of a mixture of perhaps a relatively modest salary with dividend payments to benefit from the fact you don't pay National insurance contributions on dividend payments. Um, the, 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 um, The status tests that apply in the employment tribunal and the tax tribunal are very similar but I think it's important to note that if an individual is regarded as an employee from tax perspective, that doesn't automatically mean that they would necessarily meet the test from an employment law perspective. Um, It would really depend upon the facts of the particular um, scenario, um, although it very well may mean in reality that they are employees for both purposes, but don't make that automatic assumption. So what is IR35 and what's the purpose behind the IR35 regime? Well, IR35, for those who don't know, is is essentially an anti-tax avoidance legislation. It's set out in Chapter 8, Part 2 of the Income Tax, um, Earnings and Pensions Act 2003, and it regulates the tax treatment um, for workers who provide their services through what we call an intermediary which is commonly a personal service company. So you can see from the diagram there, we've got a contractor who's um, providing uh, services through their intermediary to the end user client. Now, the reason the IR35 regime has developed is because for there to be a contract of employment, from either an employment law perspective or a tax perspective, there has to be a direct contractual relationship between the contractor and the end user client. And if there isn't, there is no contract of employment. So what what started to happen was to avoid individual contractors being classed as employees, corporate structures were put in place, like this one involving intermediaries, to prevent that direct contractual relationship between the contractor and the end user client. And the revenue has long been concerned about individuals choosing to and deliberately structure their arrangements in such a way, i.e. provide services through commonly a personal service company, to avoid paying the the increase, the higher rates of employment tax, when in reality, their their relationship with the end user client is actually more akin to an employment relationship. And according to Revenue, only 10% of personal service companies actually currently operate IR35 properly, correctly. Um, And they've estimated that that cost the revenue approximately um, £1.2 million a year. So clearly there's there's a big financial incentive there from the revenues point of view to get IR35 operating correctly, um, which um, I suppose is largely part of the reason they're looking to make the reforms, which Tim is going to talk about in much more detail um, shortly. So how does IR35 apply? What are the stages you need to think about and go through? Well, the first thing that IR35 does essentially say, well, where there isn't a direct contractual um, link between a contractor and a client, you have to imagine, you have to construe or construct a hypothetical contract um, between the two. So essentially, you have to establish whether a contractor would be an employee of the client, but for the intermediary, which is sandwiched between the two. And you have to go through this process on a contract by contract basis. So what do you need to do? Well, I've um, summarised the three steps to the IR35 test. So the first one is you've got to examine the written contract there will almost always be a contract between the personal service company and the end-user clients. So you have to have sight of that and see what the written terms are. Equally well, there will um, almost certainly be a contract between the individual contractor and the personal service company, which you will also want to have sight of. But you must go beyond that. It is not just about what's written in the contractual paperwork. You also need to consider the circumstances within which that contract is operated. So in other words, what is happening down on the ground? What's the reality of the situation between the contractor and the end user client? And really you want your written documentation to mirror the working arrangements. Secondly, once you've thought about those two um, principles, you need to go on and construe or put together the hypothetical contract. So what would the terms be between the contractor and the client, but for the intermediary? So if you remove the intermediary from the equation, what would the actual contractual terms be between the individual contractor at one end of the um, contract and the client at the other? And then once you've you've put together that hypothetical contract, you then need to apply the relevant employment status tests to determine whether that contract would satisfy the test and be classed as a Contract of Employment. So thinking about the Employment Status Test, these have derived over many years really from decisions in both the Employment Tribunal and the Tax Tribunal. And what it's enabled individuals like myself and Tim to do is distill the key tests that are applicable when you're trying to establish whether an individual is likely to be classed as an employee or not. So I've put up there on the slide, the key test. So the first one you'll see is personal service. So is there a contractual obligation on the individual contractor to personally perform the service or the work? If there is, that would tend to point more towards them being an employee than an independent contractor. Alongside this concept of personal service, um, there's often reference to substitutions. So is there a right for the individual contractor to send somebody else in their place? If there is a right of substitution, that would tend to point more towards them being a self-employed individual. In terms of substitution clauses, um, you can sometimes have entirely unfettered substitution clauses, which again would be really strong evidence that the individual is self-employed, whereas on other occasions you may have a substitution clause, but it could well be subject to quite strict controls by the client, which would again perhaps be a factor pointing more towards an employment relationship Um, and it's important that there isn't just a contractual right to substitute the best evidence um, to help support a case that the individual is self-employed is actual proof that that clause has been exercised. Mutuality of obligations, that's another important test and that essentially boils down to whether there's a requirement for the client to provide work and a similar um, right for the worker to undertake that work. We've then got the control test. So that involves a consideration of, um, is there any control exercised by the client on what the contractor does, when they do that particular work or service, where they do it, and how they do it. And the greater the degree of control, the more likely the individual is to be an employee rather than a self-employed individual. Interestingly, over time, the courts are recognising that the concepts of control as regards how an individual provides their service is arguably less important than the others um, because I'm sure we can all think of examples where it may genuinely be that certainly for a particularly skilled contractor they may just genuinely be better placed than the client to decide how that particular service is delivered and it's um, a framework of control really that's important rather than necessarily day-to-day control. Um, And as I say, the more control a client's exerting over an individual, the more likely they are to be an employee. We've then got the integration test. So that involved a consideration of how well integrated is the individual into the client's business? Are they part and parcel of that business? So do they get invited to internal meetings? Are they subject to internal processes and procedures? Do they have their own client email address? etc, etc. And the more of those that apply and the more embedded the individual is within the client's organisation, again, the more likely they are to be an employee rather than a self-employed individual. And the final test you'll see from the slide um, involves a consideration of the other provisions of the contract and making sure that everything else is consistent with this genuinely being a contract of service, i.e. employment, rather than self-employed. And there's lots of different factors that the courts have and will take into account when they're thinking about this test. So is the individual contractor entering into the contract with the client in business on their own account? So is the personal service company um, being operated in such a way to suggest that, yes, we're running our own business here. We've got our own website. We've got our own premises. We have our own insurance policies. We have other employees etc, etc, etc. They would all point more towards that individual being self-employed rather than an employee. Also thinking about could the individual earn a profit in the way they decide to provide those services and or could they perhaps suffer a loss? Again, they're factors that would suggest that the individual is self-employed rather than employed. Um, It may be, for example, that if there's some problem with the work on the service that's been delivered, the individual is obliged to go back and remedy any defect in their own time and at their own cost, which again would be factors that were indicative of a self-employed relationship rather than an employment relationship. So I just wanted to spend a little bit of time um, just talking through two cases which um, we've had decisions on in the last um, month. You don't tend to find you get many appellate decisions on employment status tests. So these two have come at quite a good time, really, for this for this session. So the first one is a decision of the Upper Tier Tax Tribunal. Um, and as you'll see from the citation, it was an appeal, HMRC submitted. Um, to a decision of the first tier tax tribunal and very briefly it involved a BBC presenter by the name of Kay Adams who um, had her own personal service company Atoll House Productions Limited and her personal service company entered into a contract with the BBC for her to present a radio programme on behalf of BBC Scotland and under the terms of that contract the BBC committed to paying a minimum fee of £155,000 to Miss Adams' personal service company in return for her committing to a minimum of 160 radio programmes during the course of that year. HMRC looked into the arrangement and they determined that it fell within IR35 and therefore the um, fee that the BBC paid to Miss Adams' personal service company was employment income and therefore it needed to be taxed accordingly by the personal service company. Uh, Needless to say, Miss Adams and her personal service company um, issued proceedings in the first-tier tax tribunal to challenge that determination, and they were successful. And the first-tier tribunal actually found in her favour that it was a self-employed relationship. The Revenue um, perhaps unwisely chose to appeal that decision, and the upper-tier tribunal handed down their judgment in February this year. And they um, agreed that it was an arrangement of self-employment. And interestingly, they chatted, they, they, they talked through some of the employment status tests. And I think it's just a useful case to highlight the fact that this is not a tick box exercise that you can go through. And if you tick enough boxes, there will certainly be an employee or self-employed. And here, what the Upper tribunal found was that in terms of the mutuality of obligations test, they found that that was satisfied from an employment perspective, so that was a factor that indicated this was actually an employment relationship. And they said, "Well, look, the BBC is obliged to pay a minimum fee to Miss Adams. She's obliged to commit to a minimum number of programmes that have to be delivered on days and at places as, as kind of directed by the BBC." They looked at the control test, and again they said, "Well, we think that's satisfied to sufficient degree that this does seem like a contract of employment." The BBC had a right to restrict Miss Adams' ability to undertake other engagements, and a modified right of first call over her services. But what the Upper Tribunal went on to, to, to do was to consider the. Um, I'm just I'm the to go back. Was to consider the final point of the status test. So, what were the other provisions of the contract? Were they consistent with this being a contract of employment or not? And actually, the upper tribunal determined that they weren't. And it was that test that shifted the contract into the self employment category from the employment category. And they said it was clear to them that Miss Adams and her personal service company entered into the contract with the BBC um, on business on her own account. They said and they recognised that there was a degree of financial dependence between her and the BBC for the years in dispute. But actually, they looked back over her 20 plus year career and concluded that she had consistently been a freelancer. They also considered the fact that when she was at home, she couldn't access the BBC systems and she wasn't subject to their internal um, processes such as annual appraisals, for example. So I just wanted, as I say, to touch upon that one because it does demonstrate that even if you tick some boxes, arguably some of what you may regard as the most important employment status tests, you've, t- you've got to take a step back and look at the global picture and establish whether on balance you really feel this does have the flavour of a contract of employment or not. The second case which I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with by now is the Uber decision. Um, We've now had um, the Supreme Court's ruling on this last month. Um, This all began back in 2016 when two of Uber's drivers issued proceedings in the tribunal For a determination that they were workers of uber and therefore entitled to um, statutory paid holiday and national minimum wage uber have consistently maintained throughout the past four and a bit years of this rumbling through the courts that the drivers were self-employed contractors and they were simply providing a technology platform to put those drivers in touch with customers and the supreme court um, gave that pretty short shrift as had the previous employment tribunals and they said we recognize that your contractual documentation goes to great pains to paint these drivers out as being independent contractors, but the reality is um, we look beyond the contracts. And having done that, they were satisfied that Uber exercised a significant degree of control over its drivers. And it focused, Supreme Court focused on five particular elements. So they said, look, Uber dictates the fare, the driver's charge, and therefore it's dictating on determining their pay. They've imposed the contractual terms on the drivers. There was no negotiation there. They restricted the driver's choice of whether to accept or decline certain fares. They exercised significant control over the way in which the drivers provided their services. And finally, they restricted communication between the drivers and the customers. And therefore, the Supreme Court said that, look, on balance, when you take all those factors into account, this is a relationship um, of, of worker status. And they also highlighted, I think, the public policy reasons behind the creation of this concept of a worker, which is to protect vulnerable individuals where they're clearly in a position of insubordination, as was the case here between Uber um, and and its taxi drivers. Finally, on this slide, I've made reference to HMRC's CES tool, which is Check Employment Status for Tax tool. Some of you may already be familiar with this. Um, It's an online tool that the revenue have that individuals and businesses can access to get a a decision, a determination on whether an arrangement is likely to fall within or without of IR35. It's been um, riddled with um, complaints really since it launched in 2017. But what the revenue do say is that as long as you answer the questions on the Cess tool accurately, they will stand by that determination. So there is definitely some value there. Um, In accessing the CESS tool, for two reasons really. One is because it will give you an insight into what the revenue um, may, what decision the revenue may make if they were to undertake a review of a particular arrangement. And secondly, if you keep a copy of the decision, the questions, and the answers that you gave, you can use that as pretty good evidence to defend any subsequent claim um, you may be involved in. So, how does IR35 currently operate in the private sector? Well at the moment the responsibility for determining whether IR35 applies sits with the intermediary. So you'll see there from my slide if it's a three-party chain it's, it's the party in the middle the intermediary but no matter how long the contracting chain is it at the moment will remain, um, it will be the intermediary's responsibility. So what that means is the intermediary has to apply IR35, i.e. they have to think about the three-stage test, the written terms and the circumstances, they have to think about um, constructing the hypothetical contract, and thirdly, then they have to apply the relevant employment status tests. If the intermediary determines that IR35 does apply, then it's the intermediary's responsibility to operate PAYE and make appropriate national insurance contribution deductions. If an intermediary determines that IR35 does apply, but they fail to operate it and the revenues subsequently make a determination that they ought to have operated IR35, then they can issue them with a Regulation 80 notice to recover the income tax and a Section 8 notice to recover the national insurance contributions that ought to have been um, paid by the personal service company. HMRC can ordinarily go back four years to pursue those um, payments, but that can be increased up to six years if they think the intermediary has been careless and up to a maximum of 20 years if they think there's been some sort of deliberate fraud. On top of that, of course, they can also impose um, interest and penalties on top of the actual tax itself. So that's the end of my um, section for today. I'm going to now pass over to Tim Cook who's going to talk you through the upcoming changes to the IAPH5 regime in the private sector. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Sarah. Um, so we're going to look at the what's happening now. In the public sector, we've had uh, changes which came in in 2017, and the revenue discovered that these changes, which forced the public sector entities to determine the status that Sarah has just been talking about, um, very profitable as far as the revenue were concerned. So they decided that they wanted to introduce exactly those same criteria into the private sector originally in 2020, but because of COVID deferred until 2021. So obviously this is just about to happen. Now, the the terms and services things that you need to know and understand are listed on the screen there. You've got the client, that's the ultimate end user. The agency, anyone who places somebody somewhere. The payer, that's the person who physically pays the intermediary or the contractor. And that could be the agency by the way, or it could be another entity like an umbrella company. You've got the intermediary, which Sarah's been referring to, that's the PSC. And finally, you've got the contractor. So who's the client? So, the client is the end user of the contractor. They're caught by the new rules if the client is either a medium or a large entity, or they're voluntary sector organizations, or all public sector organizations. So, let's look at the definition of medium or large, because this is extremely important. If the client is not Medium or large, then they do not fall into these new rules. So you've got to, for them to be medium or large, they need to meet two out of three of the following tests turnover of more than 10.2 million, balance sheet total assets more than 5.1 million, or an average of more than 50 employees. And the corporate entity will cease to be medium or large if it no longer meets. Uh, two out of the uh, tests for two consecutive financial years. Something that's very important to bear in mind, however, is that if um, the particular client is part of a group, and whether that's a UK group or an international group, these totals and figures we've got here reply to the uh, entire group they do not look at the individual client so if you're talking about for instance somebody like uh royal bank of scotland then it's every single one of the different trade labels in there if it's the at west group it's all the individual uh, bits within that group there as well so who's the agency well this is any form of a recruitment or an employment agency or an umbrella organization who places contractors with the end client to work. Who's the payer? Well, this is the party in the chain and the contracting chain, Sarah referred to and I mentioned earlier with all those different symbols. They are the people that actually pay the contractor or the PSC. So the changes that are coming in from April 2021 is that the client will be required to review the relationship between the contractor and themselves. If you refer back to what Sarah was uh, discussing earlier in the original IR35 rules, it was the contractor's intermediary that decided whether or not these rules apply. That's now been shifted up the chain to the client, and it's the client's responsibility to do that and to decide, is the relationship an IR35 relationship? Sarah briefly mentioned test earlier, which is the HMRC's tool. Whilst it's not perfect, uh, it is recommended that you look to put some of the contracts that you have through that system so that you do have some evidence that you've taken reasonable uh, care, because this is extremely important that you've taken reasonable care. So what happens? The client has to issue something called a status determination statement. They have to issue it to the contractor, and in that statement, it has to say, I either think you're in IR35 or you're outside IR35, and it has to give reasons for the decision. They also need to issue that determination to the next person in the chain. They don't have to issue it to everyone in the chain, they just have to issue it to the next person in the chain. What's important is that the contractor and the intermediary can appeal against this status determination at any time within the term of the contract. They don't have to appeal on day one, they don't have to appeal before they start work. They could appeal on the last day of the contract if they wanted to. Appeals must be addressed within 45 days by the client. So looking at appeals, the client must review the SDS that they've already come out with, the status determination statement, and either confirm the original determination together with reasons or issue a revised determination with reasons again. And good record keeping is essential. So diagrammatically, this is what we've got here. You've got the status determination. The client makes the decision. They pass it to, in this instance, the contractor. And they also pass it to, in our diagram here, agency one. It's agency one's responsibility, however, to pass it to the payer. If the client does not issue a status determination or does not take due care and attention, all the liabilities for the PAYE will fall upon the client. However, if, in our example here, agency one does not pass the status determination along the chain to the payer, then agency one will become the liable party. The client will not be liable because they have correctly passed the status determination to the contractor and have passed it to agency one. So it's extremely important that anyone in this chain make sure that they pass the status determination along the chain and keep a record that they've done it. So payments uh, for a PSC within IR35. So PAYE must be applied to the amount of the invoice net of VAT. I've got an example in a minute we can look at. The payer uses the name of the contractor on PAYE documents. And at the end of the contract, we'll issue a form P-45 Or if the contract goes over the end of a tax year, they'll issue a form P60. The contractor will then include these details in their self-assessment return. So payments for the the PSC that's within IL-35. We've got an example here of an invoice of 10,000 pounds plus VAT for a month. And the person who's actually paying that has to deduct tax and national insurance contributions, both employee contributions and employer contributions. So on the left-hand side of the screen there, you can see um, the tax that would be deducted from um, a payment of 10,000 pounds would be 2,957.80 if they were able to apply the standard PAYE code. Um, It's believed they won't, by the way. It's believed they'll have to operate at least basic rates. They'll have to then deduct employees' national insurance, and they'll have to deduct employers' national insurance. So we've got total deductions of £4,758. The gross pay was £10,000, so the amount of the net pay to be paid across to the PSC is £5,241.56p. Now, because this PSC is VAT registered, there's also the VAT to be passed along of £2,000. So the total payment going into the PSC will be £7,241. So how do we prepare for the changes? You need to implement a contract review system if you are a client. You need to create a system to ensure that SDSs are passed to the contractor and next in the supply chain. Again, the client. You'll see the client here is getting all the responsibility. You need to create an appeal process for SDSs. Again, that is the client's responsibility to do that. And the client must make sure they have maintained sufficient records so that they can prove they've implemented the contract review system they can prove they've created a system to ensure SDSs have been passed along the chain and that indeed they have passed it to the contractor and the next person in the chain and they have to prove that they've got uh, an appeals process which is effective and operates when they receive a an appeal from an intermediary or contractor the payer is the person that needs to set up the payroll systems you can set them up using your ordinary uh payroll that you might apply to staff or you can indeed set up a separate payroll We've jumped a few pages there. There we go. So those are the main things that you've got to look at. And now what I just wanted to cover off for a second is um, this question of how much the revenue will uh, look into whether or not you've done what you need to do. So examples that the revenue are giving will indicate a client has taken reasonable care, uh, include, but are not limited to, Accurately applying and keeping a record of the employment status principles. Accurately, uncom- accurately completing and applying the results of HMRC's CEST test. So, of course, this is HMRC think assess test is the best thing since sliced bread. Despite the fact that most of us in the profession disagree with it, they do expect you to have put the contract through the system. Uh, You need to be able to show you've applied HMRC guidance on determining status. If necessary, you need to show that you've sought advice from a qualified professional advisor, such as Sarah or myself. Having someone with a good understanding of the work to be undertaken involved in the determination process. Ensuring determinations made for existing engagements are accurate, so mistakes can be identified and not repeated for future determinations. Considering whether there's a new contract or a continuance of an existing contract, where terms and conditions or working practices of an engagement change. Making a new status determination if there are any material changes to a worker's terms and conditions or working practices. Reviewing the process being applied and amending for future determinations when necessary. And ensuring its checks and review processes with other parties where it subcontracts the determinant process to another person and the client is responsible for the accuracy of the SDS. So that's quite a long list. Now let's look at it the other way around. What do the revenue consider is something that is not taking reasonable care? And I think the first one is an extremely important one because I've been talking to one of my clients about this and I understand that uh, One of their clients is going down this route, which is basically determining that every worker uh, who provides their services through an intermediary is caught by the off-payroll working rules without giving any consideration to the specific facts in each individual case. Making a determination when it is known and planned that the contractual terms or working practices will change and so the determination does not represent the true nature of the engagement. Determining that the off payroll working rules apply to a large group of workers who have some variations between the work that's being carried out without giving proper consideration to the different working arrangements for each worker. Failing to reconsider determinations when there's been a material change in circumstances. An absence of any proper support or training within the organization to enable those individuals responsible for making determinations to accurately consider the off-payroll working rules. Inputting inaccurate information into the CESTO. Failing to take account of all relevant evidence. Failing to ensure that the person tasked with completing the SDS process the knowledge to complete it and is provided with the required level of support to do so. So again, this is his training aspect. The client subcontracting the SDS process to another party are not confirming the accuracy of that conclusion and the reasons for it. So again, it's quite a long list of things, but it's pretty clear that the revenue want people to not just, uh, at a brushstroke, decide people are within this system. They actually want them to carefully look at all the facts, uh, take everything into consideration when making these determinations. Just uh, as a uh, a, a little aside, Sarah mentioned cases earlier on. Since the legislation was introduced, uh, there's been 19 cases, and the revenue have only managed to win six of them. Having said that, some of those wins are the wins in more recent times uh, in connection with a lot of the presenters for ITV and BBC. And that has swayed in both directions. Sarah mentioned earlier Kay Adams, where Kay Adams won. Lorraine Kelly was another one that won. Uh, However, you've got people like Eamon Holmes and Krista uh, Ackroyd who lost, uh, all for different reasons. And if anyone looks at the cases, you can see all these different reasons. There are some quite good summaries available, but things like the length of the contract. In Krista Ackroyd's case, she had a seven-year contract That was seen almost to be um, an employment contract without looking any further, purely by reference to the fact it was a seven-year contract. She also worked somewhere between 96.5% and 98% of her time for the BBC. She didn't really work for anyone else. Um, Lorraine Kelly, on the other hand, uh, they said, yes, mutuality exists, but that exists in most contracts. Otherwise, you can't have a contract. Uh, but it was found that uh, Miss Kelly had a minimal or no supervision. Uh, she decided on the running order in the show. She decided who was going to come on the show and how they were going to get interviewed. Um, she was able to go off on to trips. For instance, she went to Antarctica uh, for four weeks. Um, which was affecting her ability to present the the show and ITV had to get a substitute in to do that so quite a lack of control there uh, and while whilst the contract uh, was in place with ITV miss Kelly carried out lots of other different uh, items including writing uh, designing uh and uh, advertising, etc., cetera, fashion lines. She did uh, numerous different things, lots of personal appearances and other television programs as well. So it was seen that uh, in the round, Miss Kelly's company, which was uh, Albertel, was actually providing um, a persona of Lorraine Kelly to ITV um, and that that was considered not to be in the IR35 scenario. So uh, I think we've got to about 10 minutes before we're, we're finishing there. I just one last comment, because I know people are asking this quite a bit. Is there, in fact, a template uh, which is available from HMRC in relation to status determinations and the answer is no; they haven't been that helpful, unfortunately. Um, however, there are some templates available uh, on the internet. And, but very basically, what you're required to do with a status determination statement is that you are you need to put down the name of the uh, company, you need to put down the contract start date, the agency if there is an agency, and the date the contract was. Uh, completed the end of the contract period, and it's who actually completed the status determination. You then have to state whether you believe that the engagement is within IR35 or outside IR35. So, if you say it's outside IR35, then the person is considered self employed. If you say it's inside IR35, and you say the person is considered to be uh, employed. You then have to list the reasons why you have come to that conclusion. And you need to be as expansive on those reasons as possible in order to reduce the chance uh, of any challenges, either from the PSC-struck contractor or from the revenue when they come around or look at these documents subsequently. One small glimmer of of, uh, niceness is the revenue have promised what they call so-called soft landing um, in the first couple of years, which means that uh, anyone who's uh, been trying to do the right thing but hasn't managed to do the right thing will not be necessarily heavily penalized. So I think that's come to the end of the chat, really. Uh, I'm going to pass back to B because I think she might be having some questions that have come in uh, for us to answer. So it across to B. Great. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Sarah. That was really cool, <coughs> I think. Um, I'm just
0: going to keep off with a couple of questions that have come through, but um, by all means, have questions? That's to the audience. Please do keep sending them through. Um, first one for Sarah is you, you very helpfully talked us through the uh, different criteria for testing employment status in your section. Um, is there any particular length of contract at which point the arrangements might switch from self-employment to?
1: Um, No, there isn't um, a sweet spot, so to speak, where an engagement will tip over from being self-employed into an employment arrangement. I think what I would say is the longer an arrangement goes on for, like the uh, Krista Ackroyd case that Tim mentioned, I think that the more likely it may be that there could be a finding of an employment relationship there. There'll inevitably be a high degree of mutuality of obligations where an arrangement's been ongoing for a period of time. And also, I think from a more practical point of view, what tends to happen is um, over time, the contracting parties can get more and more familiar with each other. And whilst they may start out at the beginning of the um, engagement, sticking to the contractual terms quite strictly, the client keeping the independent contractor at arm's length and you know, making a real effort to treat them differently than they treat their employees, over time, that can start to fall away. And that's when problems can um, frequently arise because an individual um, can become um, embedded and really well integrated into the client's organisation. So it's important that you keep a regular review, really, of these types of engagements and keep sense checking them to make sure that whilst they may have been um, genuinely self-employed at the start, if you're several months down the line or even several years down the line, chances are things will have probably changed. So it's important, as I say, to keep a regular eye on um, arrangements to make sure that you're, you're still treating the person um, in the correct way in line with, as I say, the contractual documentation.
2: Yes, so Sarah, if I could just jump in there for a second. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that uh, comes up quite frequently is things like forgetting that contractors don't go to Christmas parties. Contractors don't have staff passes when they go into a building. They don't have key fobs and things like that. And people have to make sure that that is something that they uh, watch for, as you quite rightly said, because there is a tendency for that to get blurred um, when time goes by. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, is there a tipping point at which their involvement in the company um, uh, uh, matters? them over from self-employment to employment is there any hard and fast rule about that
1: not really i think it, it it involves as i say an analysis of the arrangement at the particular point in time you're looking at it because as i say from the outset um often these arrangements will be very clear and they will strict they will stick as i say to the terms that are agreed in the contract but um you know familiarity can creep in as i say And unwittingly, these individuals can just um, become part of your normal workforce. And it's important to be quite strict with yourself to make sure that that doesn't happen and to remember that they're not your employees. So don't inadvertently subject them to any of your internal policies or procedures, because that would give an indication that actually you're treating them in the same way as you treat your employed staff. Um, and, you know, the practical examples that Tim gave, you know, of giving them passes and fobs and email addresses and, you know, just, just, um, you know, as I say, it, 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 one of the tests you think about is, well, you know, are they integrated? Are they part and parcel of the client's business? Um, and there will, there will come a tipping point, but um, it will vary really depending on, as I say, the particular arrangement you're looking at. There isn't a moment in time, for example, there isn't any, statutory provision that says after nine months or after 18 months that's the point in time at which individuals will tip over um because as i say each contract will be will be handled and be will be uh, run differently than others
0: when when, when would the um sds think, so if, for example you, you, you ran into in 2020 with contractors uh working with you prior uh, to then when when would you need to deliver new
2: contracts, say, you had sighted under the other type rules? I think that's for the schedule, isn't All oh, right, okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. Um Yeah, so uh, the, the the important thing is, is with this, it's about looking at contracts from April 2020, Um and if that continues, if it's the continuation of a previous contract, you've got to review that. Uh, and they've got to look at the contract and issue the uh, STS accordingly um, when they have reviewed that contract. Uh, they should issue it as soon as possible so that there is time if necessary for appeals, etc. But it's very important to get that contract reviewed. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I think Sarah mentioned as well. If there are changes in the contract, you've got to make sure you review it again then, and make sure that your original determination is still a valid determination.
0: What if, what if, um, what if the, your client determines
2: that you inside IR thirty five? Sorry, say that again, B.
0: What, what if the client um, determines that you, you, you do fall within IR35 even though your own accountant
2: may have advised that Yep, so you can appeal against that if you don't agree with it. Um, you can, as I said, appeal at any point in time during the contract. And the uh, client has got to go through that review process within 45 days of your uh, appeal. And they've got to either issue a new status determination or confirm the original status determination.
0: Can it be as simplistic as saying I I only have the I I have more than one client? Hmm.
1: Can that be the basis for Um Well, I, I think just if you if you provide services to more than one client, that in and of itself doesn't mean that. Um, you wouldn't potentially fall within IR35. You'd have to um, review and examine each of your contracts, essentially, with each of your clients, because it might be um, that you fall within IR35 for one or two of your clients, but perhaps not for some of the others. Um, Equally well, you'd have to examine the sort of client to which you're providing your services um, and consider whether they'd be classed as a medium or large client, as per um, the definition Tim outlined earlier, or a small client, because if it's a small client, then the personal service company will retain the responsibility for assessing whether um, the engagement falls um, within IR35 or outside of IR35. Whereas if you're providing services to a medium or large size client, then obviously, um, as we know from what Tim's told us, the responsibility shifts up to that end user client to make that um, determination and then to notify you as the individual contractor via your um, personal service company.
2: It's possible to have several contracts running in parallel. Um and I said that if they are running in parallel, frankly, that's probably a reasonable idea that they are maybe not IR35 contracts because you're working for several people in parallel. Um, But it's, it isn't a question of saying, "Well, I've I've got one job here, and one job there." And I therefore, they're both I r thirty five, both not I r thirty five. They've got to look at the individual contracts themselves and make those separate determinations. Right. Um, I'm afraid
0: we've run out of time for questions, but uh, if you do have any questions, then do please uh, email either Sarah or Tim, or both. Um, the email details are sent at the bottom of the slides. Um, and I hope this was useful to all attending. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Tim. Um, Hopefully we'll see all again soon.